Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hey folks, your host Jason Moore here. We have a great episode in store for you today full of really powerful information. So much so that I use the word powerful way too much throughout the episode, but it is truly packed with great information. Our guest is Dr. Eldred Taylor. Dr. Eldred is a functional medicine doctor that has been practicing for over 20 years. He authored the books The Stress Connection and Are Your Hormones Making You Sick? and is also the founder of the American Functional Medicine Association. He and his wife, Dr. Ava Bell-Taylor, have been so successful in their joint functional medicine practice that they now also teach other medical professionals how to effectively assess, quantify, and improve patient conditions by enhancing the function of their body rather than just treating disease or symptoms. As you'll see throughout the episode, he clearly has a wealth of knowledge. And we talk everything from neurotransmitters and how to prevent their degradation, bioidentical hormones, erectile dysfunction, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, bioimpedance analysis, cell aging, nitric oxide testing, and of course, heart rate variability. Um, We also learned that more than 80% of people who aren't operating at their peak potential all have something in common and why every single one of his patients gets their HRV measured when they come in. Um, He also shares his four steps for tackling any stress-related condition. Uh, Throughout the episode, Dr. Eldred does get pretty technical with some subjects, but stick with it and either he or I summarize each point as we cover it. Also, part of the way through, his mic starts scratching against his shirt. That didn't really come through when we were record recording, so uh, we didn't catch it till after the show was recorded. Apologies for that. Um, but if you get tripped up by any specific topic, just visit the podcast page at EliteHRV.com slash podcast, and we'll post the show notes, links, any of the mentioned resources and additional, additional info. Um, Hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do, and uh, as usual, this episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com, which is the premier resource for learning about the science and application of heart rate variability. Listeners of the show get 10% off with coupon code ELITEPODCAST. That's over at hrvcourse.com, and let's dive in. Welcome, welcome to the show, Dr. Eldred. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation, Jason. To kickstart, to get things started, uh, maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Eldred Taylor, Dr. Eldred Taylor. Uh, I am uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. I uh, went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville and came to Atlanta, where I now practice, uh, to go to medical school at Emory University. I'm originally trained as an obstetrician-gynecologist. I did my medical school and residency uh, at Emory University and practiced uh, OBGYN pretty much uh, continuously for about 15 or 16 years. And at that point, uh, really about 10 years into practice, uh, I became very interested in bioidentical hormones. I don't know if your audience understands that, but it's more 
of a natural way to help women with menopause and other hormonal problems. And from learning about bioidentical hormones and how much that helped my patients, and it was really not what I had learned in my residency in OBGYN, uh, I began to look at other ways to help my patients that I may not have uh, learned in medical school. Because in medical school, you're primarily focused on trying to diagnose and treat diseases. But most people don't necessarily have a disease. What they have is they have an inability to function at their uh, highest level. And patients are looking uh, at how can they live their best life for the longest. And after I learned about bioidentical hormones, I began to search for other things. And we found uh, something that was very interesting, that 75 to 90 percent of visits to primary care physicians are for stress-related complaints or disorders. So we, my wife and I, my wife, who's, a, who's actually a psychiatrist, who is also uh, practices with me, we began to be very interested in stress and how to diagnose and treat stress-related conditions, not necessarily diseases, but stress-related conditions. And from that, we wrote uh, our second book, The Stress Connection. The first book we wrote was Are Your Hormones Making You Sick? And it was uh, trying to teach both doctors and lay people about hormone replacement. Then we wrote a book, The uh, Stress Connection. And uh, with that, we uh, really started to focus on stress. Initially, we were measuring salivary cortisol levels, but then we became uh, interested in heart rate variability. As an OBGYN, we did fetal heart rate tracings every time a, a mother came in, and we were looking for fetal distress. And we could tell by heart rate variability, and I was making life or death decisions looking at fetal heart rate tracings. And what I found out is that you can do that in an adult and you can uh, diagnose stress-related uh, conditions also. So I don't want to go too long, but uh, from that, we started a, an association, the American Functional Medicine Association. And also we started a supplement company, TaylorMD Formulations, specifically designing supplements to help treat and improve stress-related uh, conditions, which are uh, fatigue, uh, uh, difficulty sleeping, and, and we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about it uh, as we continue the discussion. So I didn't want to go too long, but I've been practicing this for 20, for 20 years. So I've had a lot of transitions in my, in my career. And so, uh, so that's, that's me in a, that's me in a, in a big nutshell. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That was perfect. Mm -hmm. It was, um, I think it gives you a really, gives the listeners a really good understanding of who you are, where you come from and kind of how you evolved into what it is that you do now. So, uh, so you have an active practice right now where you currently see clients as well as you advise and lead the... The American Functional Medicine Association. It's, it's AFMA, American Functional Medicine Association. We started that organization about three years ago. Uh, it's uh, growing at a, a rapid pace uh, because uh, uh, this generation, uh, my, my generation, the baby boomer generation, the millennials... Uh, they're more interested in health and maintaining function. Uh, my parents' generation, they were more uh, associated with, I'll do whatever and the doctor will give me some medication that is going to hide all of the abuse that I've been, um, I've been applying to my body. And at least my generation saw our parents uh, slowly deteriorate their last 5, 10, 15 years of life. 
And my generation seeing that and the generations to come, uh, they're really looking for more out of medicine than uh, just wait till I get sick and then either do an operation or, or put me on some type of medication that I'm going to have to take for the rest of my life. And uh, and then, you know, and then just uh, move on. That's that's uh, not what patients are looking for. And so we're trying to educate docs to be able to provide that. I'm not saying that there is not a place for traditional medicine, but uh, there's a there's a gap between not being sick and being well. And I was taught to diagnose if you were sick or not. We really weren't taught how to make people more well and more fit. So that's what the American Functional Medicine is trying to do. Okay, great. Yeah, that's 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 great. And in your practice, so you mentioned that you were OBGYN uh, originally, and it sounds like your practice has evolved into kind of a more holistic health. And what what does your typical uh, client look like? Well, I'll tell you, my typical client uh, has been a person, and I would tell you, it's eighty percent women. Uh, primarily because women are more uh, concerned about their health than men are on uh, generally. Usually it takes some life-altering event for, uh, for a man to come into uh, to the office. You know, he has a heart attack, chest pain, uh, whatever. Women are more in tune with their bodies and, are, and, and they can pick up minor problems. So my, my uh, usual patient is a woman somewhere between 40 and 65. But uh, unfortunately, I'm starting to see younger and younger patients who are dealing with stress-related issues. Um, uh, as we go on, I'll, I'll give you some examples. But we have more and more kids. You know, kids are so stressed out from kindergarten. I mean, really trying to get in the best kindergarten, the best uh, high school, the best college. Uh, so I, I'm starting to see younger uh, uh, patients because. Uh, I may be seeing the mothers and we're doing heart rate variability. We're doing something called bioimpedance analysis that, that uh, uh, indicates what stress is doing to them, why they can't sleep, why they're tired, why they can't focus, because they have uh, a depressed autonomic nervous system. They don't have enough energy in the sympathetic nervous system to uh, have some get up and go. And also you have to have enough energy in your parasympathetic nervous system in order to sleep well. So my typical patient is, is somewhere in that age range. But the primary complaint is usually fatigue, a difficulty sleeping. Uh, I also have, still have the patients who have hormonal issues. But uh, what I've learned through 15 years of practicing more functional medicine is that my original thought that we could uh, alleviate a lot of problems just by ba um, balancing hormones, stress plays a much bigger role in health than I ever imagined, that 75 to 90 percent of uh, patients who come to the office with stress-related complaints or disorders, uh, I can definitely uh, attest to that statistics. It's probably closer to 90 percent. And by using heart rate variability, you can, you can see it uh, uh, as being very evident that that is a serious problem. Great. And so do you, do you measure heart rate variability right out of the gate with all of your uh, patients, or is it kind of a case-by-case -case, uh, basis? Everybody who walks in the door uh, gets a heart rate variability uh, because uh, you can't really you know, say for sure just, for, just from an uh, interview or from history taking uh, how much stress is involved. 
so we do it on everyone. It's just like when uh, when I was practicing OB, I haven't done uh, obstetrics in, in 10 years now. But when we did obstetrics, every baby, I mean, every mother that uh, walked in the door, if they were past uh, 20 weeks or so, we put them on the heart rate monitor to uh, test for heart rate variability. Because sometimes you can have stress in a physiologic system that the patient is unaware of and has not recognized that it's a symptom. Uh, especially, I'll tell you, a lot of my women, they have very infrequent bowel movements, okay, maybe two or three times a week. Well, they don't see that as a problem. Uh, when I tell them it's a problem, they, they may see it's a problem. But then if I do a heart rate variability and they see that their parasympathetic nervous system is not functioning well, and that is the rest and digest system, it gives them it gives me and them some idea of what is not functioning that's causing that problem. So, yes, we do we do heart rate variability on everybody who walks in the door. Great. And is that something that you typically do like a before and after and you have a, a goal of increasing heart rate variability generally over the course of a, a treatment plan, for example? Exactly. We have treatment plans that go with our heart rate variability testing. Yes, we do it before, uh, and then we provide some type of treatment, and then we like to do it afterwards. We, the reason why we form Taylor MD formulations is that we got so involved in heart rate variability and what it can do and, and the conditions that it can reveal, is that we actually design products especially to change heart rate variability to increase parasympathetic tone, to try and modulate uh, sympathetic tone, and also treat the conditions, primarily the GI system, the ability of the parasympathetic nervous system to allow patients to rest. So we design specific products to correct problems that can be, in, be identified on uh, heart rate variability. And, and, and also in order to prove the efficacy of our products, we want to use the heart rate variability to show that we had an objective change in a, in a measurement and not only just a subjective change. Not only did the patient say that they are sleeping better, but we have an increase in parasympathetic tone that shows that their parasympathetic nervous system has improved. There are several studies to show that any, uh, any uh, improvement in parasympathetic activity will improve patient outcomes. Anything that enhances or increases sympathetic tone is going to cause a decrease in the uh, positive outcome in a, in a patient or in a person. So whatever you can do to enhance parasympathetic tone uh, has, has proven in many studies that it's going to improve health. And that's, and that's what we would do with, uh, with uh, fetal heart rate tracings. If we saw poor heart rate variability, we would try to uh, we we would implement maneuvers in the mother to increase that parasympathetic tone. Is because if we didn't get that parasympathetic tone to increase, that baby was going to have a poor outcome, and I was going to be dealing with a malpractice suit. So I mean that's how important that heart rate variability is. I mean we really did make life and death decisions on that. And when I first began to try and understand heart rate variability. I was trying to like, oh, this is such a new concept. But then I realized that this is what I've been doing for the last 15 years is looking at heart rate variability and trying to prevent poor outcomes in these uh, babies. And I can do the same thing to try and prevent poor outcomes in my adult patients.
That's powerful. And it's it, as you discuss this, I just wanted to kind of uh, address that you're not saying that they're, that the sympathetic uh, branch of the autonomic nervous system doesn't play a, a role and isn't important, but you're just talking about in specific situations, especially in situations where you're trying to optimize or, or recover your health, then that parasympathetic branch is really the branch to focus on strengthening. Yes, right, because most people, uh, most people don't have any problem with stimulating the sympathetic nervous system. We're such an on-the-go society. We are push, push, push all the time that the sympathetic nervous system is always uh, being, you know, being uh, demanded upon. Now, here's the problem, is that uh, when, the simp- when, the, when the body identifies a stress, anything that the body sees as being out of balance is considered to be a stress, and the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. Now, that can be as simple as uh, imbalance in blood glucose, not enough blood to a certain area. So not only is it the stress that you know we perceive as being a stress, as an emotional stress, but it's also any internal imbalance the body also sees as a stress. Now that is great. You want the body to recognize small imbalances and make a change so that the body can be at a homeostatic be uh, in balance. So you want the sympathetic nervous system to be able to do that. But then after that has been done, you want the parasympathetic nervous system to allow the body to rest and digest and bring in more nutrients so that it is ready for the next stressor. Okay. Now the problem is, is that when the, when the, when the body is running low on supplies and there's, the body needs amino acids to make neurotransmitters, to make adrenaline and to make serotonin, dopamine and GABA, these, these neurotransmitters that transmit messages in the nervous system is that when the body is running low on supplies, which are primarily amino acids, the, body is, the body's number one goal is to protect you from danger. So if it's trying to ration supplies, it's going to say, hey, we're going to sacrifice the parasympathetic nervous system because we need to make sure that you are safe and that you can protect yourself from danger. So a lot of times what will happen is, is that the sympathetic nervous system will remain either normal or elevated, and the parasympathetic nervous system is depleted of its resources. So that's why a lot of people have anxiety. They can't sleep. They, uh, you know, they have difficulty with their GI system. So the sympathetic nervous system is very, very important. But if we demand too much from it, we're going to sacrifice our parasympathetic nervous system. So, uh, yes, you want, you want your body to, to, to look for those small little uh, imbalances and to correct them. But what happens also is that the more you deplete the entire system, the body is unable to detect the small changes. And when you don't detect and correct the small changes, then what will happen is they will lead into a big problem. And that's when you start to have significant symptoms and you start to have an organ system breakdown. So, yeah, the sympathetic nervous system is important, but... But most of the time, uh, what happens is, is that, uh, that the parasympathetic nervous system is suffering. And that's why you don't get the variability. It's sympathetic all the time, so you get a, you know, you get a straight line in the heart rate variability. You don't, you don't get those uh, uh, quick and, and rapid changes. Nice. So the sympathetic should be more of an acute response, and that uh, over time you should have predominantly more sim- parasympathetic excuse me, uh, activity. Right. 
Yeah, it should be an acute response. What the stress response is supposed to be, I see danger. I decide if I'm going to fight the danger off or am I going to flee from the danger. So either way, it should be a, a, a quick decision and it should be that the body really should increase the sympathetic for about 15, 20 minutes. In, in the animal kingdom, uh, what happens is either you're going to fight off the predator or you're going to run from the predator. And the example I give when I'm talking to doctors or I'm talking to uh, patients is that either it's going to be a 10 or 15 minute fight or it's going to be a 10 or 15 minute race. If you win the fight or if you win the race, then in the animal kingdom, because this is a very instinctive type reaction, in the animal kingdom, if you win the fight or you win the race, you say, I won the fight, I won the race, that predator I don't have to worry about for a while, I'll just rest and relax till the next predator comes along. Well, if you lose the fight or if you lose the race, if you're an animal, you're a dead animal. Okay, and so you don't have the stress response when you're dead. So it, either way, if you win or lose in that fight or flight, it's a short-term reaction. Well, we don't have predators coming after us, but we have financial problems. We have sick children. We have job stressors. We have, and, and what people don't understand is that I live in Atlanta. The environment in Atlanta with all the toxins and pollution, that's putting a stress on my body to have to detoxify that. That is activates the sympathetic nervous system. So we have family issues, we have, uh, you know, we have financial issues, we have job stress issues. So all of those are constantly stimulating the sympathetic nervous system. So it's not, our, our, our society and our way of life is not conducive to this quick on and quick off. And uh, again, that's why 75 to 90% of conditions are stress related. Uh, because our way of life almost, uh, it, it almost is a uh, prerequisite for that. And that is, uh, I think you mentioned earlier as well, that's kind of what led you to end up writing your second book, The Stress Connection. Is that right? Exactly. You know, I, uh, the way I practice is that uh, I see patients for at least an hour. At least the first visit is an hour. And what I have found is that if you talk to a patient long enough, and you ask them, when did all these issues start? When did you start not to sleep? When did you start to have this brain fog? When did you, when did, when did you start to, to gain this weight? They usually can pinpoint a certain time. Uh, it was eight years ago. It was nine years ago. So then I ask them, what was happening the couple of years before that time? And I would tell you 90% of the time, in the couple of years preceding, their health failing. They had either one extremely stressful situation happen or several moderate uh, stressful situations happen. Again, my patients are, are older than you are. They, you'll see that life just brings you stressors. So usually around age 40 or 50, these women are dealing with, with uh, the stressor that primarily brings them in, which is menopause, this change in life, which is a physiologic stress. But also during that time, they have raised kids. Some of the kids have done well. Maybe some of the kids haven't done well. Also during that time, their, their, their parents have aged. So they've had to deal with those issues. You know, where do they stay? They have Alzheimer's. A lot of these patients have dealt with divorces, maybe one divorce, maybe two divorces. A lot of these are, are getting older in their career. Maybe their career is not satisfying or they're getting, they're getting pressure at their job. So usually they will tell you that all of these things happen. Now, why does it happen a year or two before? Because what can happen is that they were able to get through the stressful situation, but they may have depleted all of their resources. They may have depleted all of their vitamins and minerals, their amino acids to allow them to make neurotransmitters. 
And also their other body systems have been depleted of uh, nutrients that they need. So they began to see that their health declines one or two years after they've had stressful situations. And because stress suppresses the immune system, there's several studies that show that in women, and, and I'm, I'm primarily focused on women because I'm an OBGYN, but women with breast cancer usually have had stressors two years prior to their diagnosis of breast cancer. So all of this, you know, all this constant, never-ending stress, it is definitely detrimental to your health if you don't do something to try and balance the scale again. And that's a really powerful message for people, I think. And uh, a lot of times when you're in the moment of uh, like during that two year period when you're going through an extended period of uh, either cumulative or or acutely impactful stress, uh, you feel like you're getting through it. And sometimes people, uh, you know, say, oh, well, I, I'm fine with five hours of sleep or, uh, you know, or maybe they're trying to train for marathons at the same time that they're working 60 hours a week at their job and also have children and uh, bills to pay and all these things. And so, but when you're in the moment, you may not realize that you're causing some cumulative damage that will not manifest until a couple of years down the road. Right. And, and, you know, you talk about marathon runners and, I know primarily you use HRV to, to, uh, to try and help people assess their health level and their fitness level and should they exercise that day. But yet, if you don't do that, over-exercise is a huge stressor. And a lot of times patients, they have gone through a stressor, they've gained the weight, they've, they don't feel good. So then they go out and they over-exercise trying to feel better and actually they're doing more, uh, more harm to themselves. So uh, it's very important to gauge how much exercise because that can that can also be a stressor and when you're talking about at that present moment uh they don't realize that they're doing long-term damage you're, you're exactly right because a lot of times they have enough adrenaline they can push themselves through that uh, through that situation but then when they don't have that same stimulus the body almost overcompensates instead of it going back going back to normal it will usually decompensate and go to a level of functioning that's less than normal now, also what will happen is they will go to a regular doc and they will complain of all this fatigue and can't sleep. And so then the doc will ask, well, what's going on in your life? It sounds like stress. Well, this may be six years down the road. And now, you know, their parents died two or three years ago. They're over the grief of that. Maybe they got remarried and they're happily married. Maybe their kids turned around and you don't understand why are you having all these problems when right now you have no stress. That's why you have to talk to the patient long enough because sometimes they don't associate, they don't recognize that, oh yeah, it did start six years ago and that was two years after my divorce and two years after my parents got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So that's what's sometimes confusing uh, and the, and the, uh, the uh, person comes into the doctor and they're like, wow, you know, it sounds like stress, but you're doing fine. So it must not be that. So let me look for this. And then they don't find anything. And then they say, oh, well, you're not sick. You're fine. Well, they may not be disease sick, but the patient will definitely tell you that they're not fine. The, the, the statement I use is that, the, that the, there's a lot of frustration between physicians and uh, patients because the doctor will continue to tell the patient, you're not sick. And the patient will tell the doctor, but I know I'm not well. And they will argue about that, but really they're both correct. The doctor is saying, you don't have a diagnosable disease. 
and the patient says, I know I don't have a diagnosable, diagnosable disease, that's fine, but I'm not well like I was 10 years ago. And a lot of people chalk it up as, oh, I'm just getting old. But uh, really, it's just uh, the autonomic nervous system is, is depleted. Now, a quick word about our sponsor, HRVCourse.com. If you're looking to take your usage of heart rate variability to the next level, check out the educational video courses over at hrvcourse.com. I'm one of the contributing instructors, and so are some of the experts you've heard on this podcast. Don't forget, listeners of this podcast get a 10% discount on your first course using discount code ELITEPODCAST. Courses are only open for enrollment at certain times of the year, so check it out today at hrvcourse.com. And, and that kind of is what makes uh, measuring uh, things like heart rate variability so powerful and, and also doing other tests. Are there other tests that you run aside from heart rate variability? Yeah, some, some other tests that we do on everybody who walks in the door is a bioimpedance analysis. Have you ever heard of bioimpedance analysis? I've heard of bioimpedance, but I'm not sure if, uh, if it's the same... It probably is. Well, bioimpedance analysis has been around for probably 40 or 50 years. Uh, it was reviewed by the National Institutes of Health, and it, it gained popularity when uh, HIV and AIDS uh, became uh, 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 almost epidemic back in the 70s and 80s uh, because it can measure body composition. That's one thing it can measure. How it works is you uh, place two electrodes on the patient's foot. It's almost like an EKG. Two electrodes on the patient's foot two electrodes on the patient's hand. A current of electricity is sent through the body. It's undetectable by the patient, just like an EKG is, is not detectable. But bioimpedance looks at how does a person's biology impede the flow of electricity through the body? So based on what the body is made out of, how much fat, how much muscle, how much fluid, how much bone, then it will either slow down or speed up that current. And you can analyze that. That's why it's called a bioimpedance analysis. You can analyze that and you can get body composition. Now, you may say, well, uh, there's a lot of machines that do body composition. So that's just one part of it. But the other part of it is, is that you can determine how many new, vibrant, healthy cells a person has as compared to how many old or dying cells that they have. The body is always trying to regenerate and re, uh, you know, re renew itself. So there is a measurement that it gives us called the phase angle because new cells conduct electricity better than old dying cells. So you can take this number, the phase angle, that should be about seven. And if it's below seven, you know that the person is catabolic. They're breaking themselves down faster than they're building themselves up. So I, we do this test to see, and, and usually what is the most catabolic hormone is cortisol, the stress hormone. So this is another way we can look at what has stress or what are you doing to your body? Are you building it up as fast as you're breaking it down? So if you have a low phase angle, one, we want to try and eliminate the stressors or whatever. But the other thing that you want to do is that if the body is not able to renew itself, then either you're not putting the right foods in your mouth or your gut is not able to, to break down the food into its basic components so that it can use those nutrients to make new cells. Or the third thing that sometimes we don't think about, you have to give your body time to renew itself. And it does that when you're asleep. And if you're not having, if you're having poor quality sleep, or if you're not having enough sleep, your phase angle is going to go down 
because your body is not given time to rebuild itself from all of the exertion that you may have put it through during the day with going to work and exercise and taking care of your kids, you know, working up until 11 o'clock at night. That's what a lot of women do. And then they get four or five hours of sleep. And so those types of measurements, it, it, it helps a person to see, oh my gosh, I didn't know that that's what this was doing to me. So that is those two tests we do on everybody who walks in. We also use that again to determine is what I'm doing actually helping this person? Is it helping them to build themselves back up? Is it helping them to uh, replenish those supplies of amino acids? Uh, one other test that we do, and we, we, we do, uh, these are the big ones. We do a digital pulse analysis that looks at uh, the flexibility of the blood vessels. They're really looking at do they have enough nitric oxide to allow the blood vessels to be uh, flexible. Uh, nitric oxide, I, I don't, you've probably heard about that because a lot of people in fitness know about nitric oxide because mm -hmm. it increases oxygenation of, uh, all, of all systems, the brain, the muscles. So the, the digital pulse now, so all of these things that we can do in the office, they're in office uh, tests. Also we do you know, other blood tests. We look for vitamin D. We, we look for mineral deficiencies. We do a test called a zinc tally test where if you uh, take this zinc in, if you're low in zinc, you won't taste the metallic taste of it. But if you're uh, uh, sufficient, have a sufficient supply of zinc, then uh, you will. So these are all in-office tests. We try to get as much information as we can so we can help the patient before they ever get sick. So, so the difference is what I learned in medical school. We learned how to do disease testing. So if you have a disease, I know that I knew the test to do. But if you didn't have a, te a disease, I, it was very hard for me to quantify it. Mm -hmm. If functional medicine is about doing tests, doing functional tests, how well is a system functioning? How well is the cardiovascular system functioning? How well is your body able to renew new cells? So we do a lot of functional tests. And I try and do tests that the normal doctor is not going to do. A lot of times you go from physician to physician, they, physician to physician, they do the same test over and over again. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, thinking that you're going to get a different result. So what I, we like to do a, t a test that you're not going to usually get. And I usually see patients after they've already been to the doctor and been told that they're not sick. And I try to understand that and I say, well, I understand that you're not well. And so let's try and work on that. So. Those are some of the things that we that we do uh, in the office, and it uh, it not only gives me information, but patients are very happy that uh, finally they see some objective evidence to show them why they are feeling like they feel. Because sometimes patients think that it's all in their head, and that you know maybe I am crazy, maybe you know everybody keeps telling me I, I'm okay, and you know what's happening to me. And then also, and I, I don't mean that this is a subject I'm passionate about, so I keep talking. But also, patients get labeled with certain things like chronic fatigue, and chronic fatigue is not a, really a diagnosis; it's really just a uh, interpretation of what the patient told the doctor. The patient comes in and, and says, "Hey, doc, I'm I, I'm I'm tired all the time." Well, if I tell you you have chronic fatigue, I just told you what you told me. Because chronic <laughs> means all the time and fatigue means I'm tired. So, you know, I didn't give you any extra information, but because the doctor can't quantify it into a disease, he just names it something and he's really just naming it and he's not really giving you a, a clear idea of what it is and what can you do about it. And so patients walk around and live the rest of their lives 
and they have the excuse of, oh, you know, I have chronic fatigue. That's why I can't work. That's why I can't fully enjoy my family. That's why I can't, you know, fully fulfill the destiny of my life because I have chronic fatigue. And so they stop looking for solutions. So that is the message I'm trying to get across to physicians that these patients that frustrate you, that you can't really understand, let's try and use some different types of tests to see if that will, uh, will uh, reveal some issues that we may not have previously been taught or understood. But if we will open our minds and, uh, and try and understand these things, there's a, there's a huge number of patients out there that can be helped. And I'm so happy that people like you, I, I think I asked you when I first met you, how did you get involved in this? Because, uh, you know, heart rate variability, you know, the fact that you're trying to bring it to the public where they can do it even outside the doc. Sometimes when a patient walks in and says, this is what I'm doing and, and this is what it shows, sometimes doctors will listen to that. And that's why the pharmaceutical companies have commercials on TV is because they want the patient to come in and demand a certain drug from the doc. So hopefully with you spreading out HRV that they'll come in and demand that the doctor understand what the, understands what this information is telling them. So you start off with some broad tests that show the state of health and, and give you kind of a baseline of where the patient is at. And then you use more specific tests to figure out ways in which you can improve that level of health. And that's it's that combination that's really kind of powerful. Whereas going to, uh, you know, in some cases going to a traditional doctor, you're just diving right into specific tests without having any kind of idea of what the holistic picture is, and then just keep on testing to to those tests over and over again, and not necessarily having uh, a more uh, a bigger picture look at the overall state of health. That's, that's powerful, and I've, I've also never heard uh, as good of a description of chronic fatigue ever, and that's something <laughs> that being in the, you know, in the heart rate variability business and dealing with people who talk about stress and, in various ways, uh, chronic fatigue comes up a lot, and actually we have a lot of users on our platform that, that say, I have chronic fatigue and I'm using HRV, your, your app, to help me track that, and it's, it's a great step for them, but... I really think I hope they're listening to this particular episode because, um, you know, what you're saying is that you don't have to live your whole life with the label of chronic fatigue. <laughs> exactly right. I, 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 in my lectures, I have this uh, list of non-diagnosis diagnosis. Chronic fatigue is one. Hey, doc, uh, I'm tired all the time. Chronic fatigue. Fibromyalgia is another one. I'm sure that you probably hear all the time. Well, fibromyalgia. Fibro means um, joints. It means fibrous tissue, which the joints are made out of. The my is myo for muscle, and alga is pain. So usually the patient comes in and says, I have pain in all of my muscles and my joints. So all of my joints and muscles hurt. Well, fibromyalgia is I have pain in all of my joints and muscles. But it doesn't tell you why. Now, one, I'm not saying this is all fibromyalgia, but when a person is under stress, the body uses energy by going to the glycolic pathway, glycolic acid pathway, glycolysis. The end result of that is lactic acid. So you can be under stress, just like the lactic acid you get from uh, um, exercise. 
So you can be under stress and the body is thinking that you're going to run or it's going to fight. So it goes down this glycolic acid pathway and it makes lactic acid. That lactic acid builds up in the muscles and it causes pain. If you talk to the fibromyalgia patients, usually the fibromyalgia starts after a prolonged stressful period. The other one is attention deficit disorder. Attention deficit disorder means that I have trouble paying attention. Well, when you have an excess, and I'm not saying this is all, but this can be some of it, is that the sympathetic nervous system makes you think of a thousand things at one time. It's trying to evaluate where's the danger coming from. If you don't have enough parasympathetic activity to calm that down, you're going to have trouble focusing. So again, I'm not saying that all of these conditions are related to stress or can be solved you know, simply, but I think a lot of people, there's so many people with labels. I mean, they almost wear it proudly. Oh, you know, I have ADD. Oh, you know, I have fibromyalgia. It's almost like a badge of courage or a badge of honor. And really, if they could understand it and take measures to at least try to improve it, maybe not eliminate it, but in some cases it can be eliminated. I see it in, in my office all the time, is that if you could understand it, the patient can be involved and you're giving them some idea of how to understand it. Hey, this is what's going on in your autonomic nervous system. Then what we need to do is say, this is how you can improve that. We can look to see if enhancing your ability to make neurotransmitters would help you. Can we eliminate some of these physiologic stressors? Because what you were saying is that, yes, I try to get an overall picture of the health. If the patient comes in and their phase angle is four, where it should be seven, and their parasympathetic nervous system is just about wiped out, I have to do a lot of testing to say, okay, where is that coming from? You know, uh, what system is not working? What do, we, what do we need to work on? Is it your gut? Is it your adrenal gland? Uh, is it that you don't have enough nitric oxide? What is it? If they walk in and they have a phase angle of eight and their heart rate variability is perfect, then I, don't, I wouldn't need to do as much investigation. So you're right. It'll, it, it tells me how much investigation do I have to do. And I don't just try to label people. I try to see what is their state of health. What can I do to try and improve it? What is going on or what stressors can I eliminate? And, and when I talk about stressors that, that the patient may not be aware of, uh, something like a food intolerance. And what most people know is gluten intolerance. And people who are severely gluten intolerant, they can become very, very sick. Well, there are mild cases of gluten intolerance. You can be intolerant of all types of food. Gluten, dairy, nuts are probably the, the big ones. But you can be sensitive to something as healthy as broccoli. And if we do food sensitivity testing a lot, and if you are constantly eating foods that you're sensitive to, you are setting up an inflammatory response every time you eat those foods. And that inflammatory response stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. So sometimes just simply by taking away a food totally corrects a heart rate variability. Or that person who's complaining of chronic fatigue, that's really where that chronic fatigue is coming from because they have depleted their sympathetic nervous system by constantly eating gluten. Okay, so, uh, so those are the things you have to tr look for those hidden stressors that you can take away. And then after you take away that stressor, now you have to repair the damage that has been done by that stressor. Replete the, uh, the amino acids, try and help the gut heal with probiotics, with glutamine, with greens, with aloe vera. So I always say that here are the, here are the four steps of stress. First, you try and identify and eliminate the stress if at all possible. 
but sometimes if you have a sick child, uh, autistic child, but you can't eliminate that stress. And, and sometimes if it's your spouse and you don't believe in divorce, you can't eliminate that stress. So you have to change how you respond to the stress. You know, you change how you respond to the stress. And sometimes the heart rate variability, well, I can the heart rate variability can see how a different response has changed how your autonomic nervous system responds to the stress. Okay. So if you can't change your response to the stress, you then have to try and repair your body from the stress, from the past stress, and prepare your body to be able to be better handle the future stress. So those are kind of my four steps. Eliminate, change your response. If, that, if those two don't work or can't be done, then what you would try to do is to repair the damage that has been done and then prepare your body for this ongoing stressor. And, and you can do that and even live with they, what they stress. You can see people live with all kinds of horrible conditions, but either they've changed how they respond to the stress and, uh, and they've repaired their self from that stress and they prepared their body to handle the stress in the future. So that's kind of that four point game plan that we try to do. I mostly try to help them to identify the stress and to, uh, and to eliminate the stress if it's something that can be eliminated. They have to be a part in changing how they respond to the stress. And biofeedback can, can help them with that. But then I also try and give them treatment plans to help them repair their body and also to help them prepare for future stress to come. That's, that's a, uh, I really am going to highlight that, that four steps because I think that's really powerful. And, and actually, there's those similar steps can be applied to so many systems. And uh, there's an author who I've read, Nassim Talib, who uh, writes about uh, economics a lot and things like that. And, and he just talks about kind of similar. Uh, the first step to improving a system is to mitigate those fragile points. And, and then after that is to robustify the system, kind of strengthen the system and repair it. And then also uh, prepare for future stressors. He, he talks about anti-fragility. Um, but uh, basically, yeah, uh, preparing for future stressors, that can only come after you've already mitigated the uh, existing ones and, and kind of healed and repaired from those. Well, I, I haven't read that book, so I don't, you know, with this Obama-Trump uh, uh, plagiarism of the speeches, uh, I didn't plagiarize that. I came up with that myself, my four points. I didn't know he could, you could apply it to a financial system. So that's very interesting. So I, I guess that is just a part of repairing almost, uh, almost anything. Uh, so, uh, so I didn't plagiarize that. I just want. <laughs> oh no, no, that's that's great. No, I I just like that you you came from a, a totally different background and a totally different experience and came to a similar conclusion because biological systems are are complex systems and um, you know they behave. Uh, economic systems behave very similarly to biological systems. So one thing I wanted to kind of uh, bring back around is you mentioned that uh, sometimes people will go to the doctor and they'll, uh, they'll, the doctor will say, I'm not sick, but the patient will say, I'm not well. And, and that's one hand that you may see in that. And just being a, a young male uh, person is I have another perspective as well that I think uh, that you'll probably identify with with some of your uh, patients, especially now that you're seeing a lot more young patients as, as well, is that I was kind of um, 
I wasn't sick, but I wasn't well from such a young age that I didn't know that I wasn't well. And um, fitness actually, uh, by, by luck almost, led me to make some changes to my diet and my lifestyle. And I eliminated a lot of foods that turned out to be really uh, inflammatory to me. And uh, I experienced for the first time uh, uh, lifting of brain fog and uh, constant energy levels that I, I didn't even know I could achieve um, because I thought that falling asleep in school was kind of a normal thing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I didn't want to sleep in school, but sometimes just staying up late playing uh, computer games or, uh, you know, uh, eating pizza rolls too often uh, and things like that were really uh, causing this fog and this uh, inconsistent energy levels. And then on the same side, similarly, you mentioned that the gut may not be able to absorb nutrients even if you're eating a good amount of nutrients. And uh, during that time, I started uh, working out and I was trying to eat tons and tons of calories, but I was never gaining any weight, which... <laughs> Yeah. Some people don't want to hear that because right. they can gain, <laughs> no, they gain weight you. too easily. Right, right. But but it, it's a different problem, and it's still indicative of issues on the inside. And uh, finally, after eliminating a lot of foods, uh, you know, my brain fog lifted. My energy levels are constant and powerful throughout the day. I'm able to put on muscle when I actually uh, exercise, and all these things. But I didn't know that. I had those issues because I just had had them forever and um, so the, I just wanted to kind of add my experience with uh, and now that I manage uh, or now that I am able to analyze some objective data and keep a tap on that um, you know I can kind of tell when different decisions are affecting me and I also pay a lot closer attention to those things now so and so you're, you're the perfect example of this younger and younger patient that I, I see I'll give you an example. I had a young guy I'd taking care of his mother, and she brought her son in. He was 21 years old. He actually uh, went to Vanderbilt. He was here to um, to visit. And he's 21 with erectile dysfunction, and he's been on antidepressants since he was 14. So I did the heart rate variability and saw that his parasympathetic nervous system was really pretty much shot. He said he, he had trouble sleeping also. His mother said he had just gotten an internship with a big company, and actually a job with a big company, but she noticed that he's not as excited. So he had kind of this flat affect. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, his parasympathetic nervous system was shot. In order to have an erection, you have to have parasympathetic, parasympathetic activity in order for the blood vessels to relax to have an erection, and that's in a lot of studies. So anyway... We gave him amino acids and we gave him a supplement called EasyCom that has taurine, picamelian, glycine. It's actually to help the parasympathetic nervous system. So we put him on that. Uh, in two months, he called me and told me everything was fine. He had gotten off his antidepressants. Everything works like it's supposed to work. And we redid the heart rate variability and his parasympathetic activity had almost tripled. Uh, then I decided, I said, let me go and see if there's any information about this, because maybe this was just a fluke. But if you read uh, some uh, information that comes from urology journals, they recommend using HRV in erectile dysfunction. 
they said that it works as well as a pudendal nerve test. And if they did HRV and not a pudendal nerve test on uh, um, uh, their patients who had uh, erectile dysfunction, that they would not have missed any uh, autonomic nervous system problems. So there was about four or five articles that recommended HRV as being a workup for erectile dysfunction. So, and again, anything you can do to enhance the parasympathetic nervous system is going to prove outcome. And, and this is why, and I guess I, I, I'll speak as, uh, as simply as I can, but a lot of men will have performance anxiety and premature ejaculation because ejaculation is governed by the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system uh, controls uh, erection. So that's why we see such a problem with erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation because we have overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and understimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, here's the problem. One of my best friends is a urologist, and I showed him this information, and he's like, oh, this is great, and that was the end of it. And I've learned, I've learned that I, I try and educate people who want to be educated, and people who don't want to be educated, I just move on. But, uh, but uh, that's very interesting. I used, I, I've, I've had that situation you know, several times. And again, you know, I don't care what you say. It's not normal for a 21-year-old college student to have erectile dysfunction. I mean, that just should not, that just should not happen. And uh, it, this basis can be uh, just correcting the autonomic nervous system. And, you know, he was on antidepressants. And he was telling me, I, I, he had gotten off the antidepressants. He's like, wow. He said, it is commonplace for these kids to be on antidepressants. And uh, I think that's just, uh, it's just pitiful because once you get on antidepressants, it's very hard to get people off of it if you don't provide the body with the precursors for them to make serotonin, dopamine, and GABA. And that's usually the issue. They've depleted their ability to make neurotransmitters. So the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, all they do is allow the low level of serotonin to last longer. It stays in the synapse longer. But that really causes a problem because it desensitizes the receptors and it leaves serotonin open for degradation. So usually what happens is the longer you're on the antidepressant, the lower your serotonin becomes. So now five years later, when you try to get off of it, your serotonin level is much lower than what it was before. And the only way you can really correct that is to give amino acids. And I use this, I use the heart rate variability a lot to show that, hey, this is your real problem. It's not because you don't have enough Zoloft in your system. It's really because you don't have enough precursors to allow your autonomic nervous system to work correctly. Well, and, and just to kind of bring up again what you said earlier is that there's so many diagnoses that are, are non-diagnoses, diagnoses like uh, you know, ADD, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue, and then there's a lot of other diseases that are just skyrocketing in popularity. Uh, diabetes, you know, especially type 2 diabetes, uh, Alzheimer's, definitely obesity and things like that. And so uh, to me, kind of what we're talking about, you know, big picture versus specific is that if you see that in a in a culture or in a community that um, there's a, a, a rapid rise in uh, either these diseases or these non-diagnoses, um, you know, what are all these people doing similarly because there might actually be similar roots 
and but it's just manifesting in different ways uh, from different people and uh, so yeah you're exactly right you're saying okay well, yeah this rise that means that that uh, all these people are being exposed to some stimulus to cause all of these problems and and again you know I think it's stress we talk about obesity stress cortisol is implemented in insulin resistance and I have a whole chart about that so if you're under chronic stress and you're putting out a lot of cortisol it's going to lead you into insulin resistance also inflammation causes you to be leptin insensitive so your body stores more more fat than than it than it should so that can be a problem toxicity can cause you to um, put on weight so yeah we're exposed to so many things that are causing uh, these issues. And you can tell this in population studies. The more westernized undeveloped countries become, the more they begin to have the diseases that we see in developed countries. So, And if they move from a country, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of in India, the rate of colon cancer is almost zero. Because in Indian cultures, in traditional Indian cultures from birth, the mother makes yogurt, makes fresh yogurt with live bacteria every day. So in that culture, they're constantly being given probiotics from birth. Now they move to this country and their rate of colon cancer is going to be equal. The longer they stay here, the more it's going to be equal to ours. I've talked to some physicians who have come from India, who were trained in India, who had never seen colon cancer. And then they come here and they see it. So, yes, changes in a person's traditional diet and their traditional environment will, will cause these conditions to be seen in a person where normally it would not be seen. So it has to be something that the person is exposed to or it's something in the environment or the lifestyle or the train, change in, in culture or, tr or tradition. So when we say that stress could be related to so many of these factors, we're just going to reiterate that that doesn't necessarily mean that just having a stressful job is going to cause all of these things or something like that. It, it's an accumulation of stress from many different avenues and or some people respond more heavily to like say nutritional stressors for example. Right. Or, and there's also uh, generational stressors that where um, you know if, the, if your parents uh, went through uh, a phase of uh, malnutrition or something like that and then that was preceding the years that you were born then that may be adding additional uh, kind of genetic stressors to to you as and so that's something for young people to consider especially right now but um, so anyways I just wanted to kind of encapsulate that so that for people for people listening um, at home that, that we're talking about many different ways and, and having a, a, a big picture view uh, is a great place to start and then from there you can narrow down to determine what it is that is affecting you the most. And, and heart rate variability is great for that because uh, let's go back to fetal heart rate tracing. We see a poor fetal heart rate tracing. We would have to go through multiple, multiple maneuvers to see if we could get the heart rate variability back. If the, if the uh, woman was in labor, we would try and slow down the contractions. Maybe the stress of the contractions were a problem. So we would do that and see if the heart rate variability would, would improve. Well, if that didn't do it, we would increase the fluids to see maybe they're not getting enough uh, fluid you know, to the baby. We would put oxygen on the mother. Maybe it's not enough oxygen. So we would go through all these maneuvers. And if we hit the right one, 
the heart rate variability would return. If we didn't, if it was something we couldn't correct, then we had to remove the person, we had to remove the baby from the stress. So, like you're talking about, there's multiple stresses, not just, you know, your husband got on your nerves or your wife got on your nerves or whatever. It's all these hidden stresses. So, what you can do is, okay, you can remove a food. Oh, did that improve my heart rate variability? Oh, wow, it did. Yes, you know, then it, it may be a food or a gut issue. Or maybe I'm going to I don't know, do some type of other intervention, either more exercise or less exercise. Did it improve my heart rate variability? That's really kind of what we were doing with fetal heart rate tracings. So if you can't go in and get a specific test, you can kind of test it using that biofeedback of heart rate variability. So I think that's a, a good place to wrap up for today. And Dr. Taylor, this has been an excellent episode. I think people are really going to enjoy all the information that you shared with us. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show today. Go ahead and feel free to share what's the website uh, of where people can find you and where people can find more information about your supplements as well. Uh, it's taylormdformulations.com, taylormdformulations.com. We do have products that are specifically designed to uh, repair and prepare uh, the body from what uh, damage could be caused by stress and stress-related conditions. Probably our number one product is Amino Restore because uh, what you'll find is that most patients are uh, low in amino acids. I, and I'll just give you one more uh, snippet of information. Uh, there's recent information out about proton pump inhibitors being um, related to dementia. I don't know if you've seen that or not. But the reason why is that proton pump inhibitors, these are, uh, inhibit these are drugs that decrease stomach acid. It's for patients who have GERD, um, who have gastroesophageal reflux, who have heartburn. So these proton pump inhibitors decrease the acid in the stomach. Acid is necessary for the body to break down proteins into amino acids. So all these patients who are on Zantac and Nexium, they are going to have trouble breaking down protein because they don't have enough acid in their stomach. If you don't break down protein into amino acids, you don't have the precursors for neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are what are needed for the autonomic nervous system to work correctly. So uh, aminos restore two things that you need are amino acids and you also need minerals because minerals have electro, uh, they're electrolytes so they have positive and negative charges. The nervous system works through neurotransmitters and through electrical charges. So amino restore has both of those in there. It's definitely our best selling product. That's how we got the guy with the erectile dysfunction, with energy. It's, it's a great, great product to start with. It also, if you're in fitness, it's a great recovery product. We've had, uh, we have several gyms who are using this. Uh, so Amino Restore is one. Also, phosphatidylserine and SerineCom uh, helps to uh, lower cortisols. Uh, so I don't want to get in too much, but go to TaylorMD Formulations. Uh, uh, I'll give Jason information on how to contact us, uh, and we would love to uh, hear from you and uh, try and help you to get rid of some of those labels that you may that have, may have been placed uh, placed on you. So. I thank you so much for this opportunity, Jason. I, I, I relish any opportunity to try and get my message out to, to lay people and to uh, any physicians that might uh, be listening, trying to understand heart rate variability also. Dr. Taylor obviously has a wealth of knowledge on this subject, and I've been fortunate to meet him in person in Atlanta and also hear some amazing stories from some of the patients that he and his wife have worked with. 
Um, Dr. Taylor's supplement line can be found at taylormdformulations.com. All of the notes and links for this show are easily found at www.elitehrv.com slash podcast. And you can message us there as well if you have any questions for myself or Dr. Taylor. Lastly, it would help me and my team out tremendously if you left a short review over on iTunes, even if you listen on another app. Uh, Just search for Elite HRV on the podcast section of iTunes or go to EliteHRV.com slash iTunes to drop us a short review. Thanks. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.